You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So, uh, yeah, we're in week three now of a newer sermon series uh, that we're calling Doctrine and Emotions, whereby we are going through a selection of the Psalms to ask the Lord to help us uh, to look to David and to other psalmists uh, to help to give voice uh, to our emotional experiences. And so if you look back a couple of weeks uh, to week one, two weeks ago, uh, you'll recall that in my introduction to the sermon series that I kind of talked to you guys a little bit about what it means to be made in the image of God. That when God made us in his image and we worship a God who experiences the full range of emotions, that you and I being emotional creatures, creatures that experience a full range of emotions are actually emulating the God in whose image we've been made. So God has not made an error in making you emotional, right? And we rested in that. We started there. We said God intended in making us in his own image for us to experience a full range of emotions in order that we might be like him. And then he furthered this point in sending Jesus Christ, who is in all ways the the full characterization of God, who is himself God, and in him living this perfect life of righteousness with no sin, he experienced and modeled for us a full range of emotions from deep tears of sorrow to laughter, joy, and, and banquets and parties to righteous anger flipping over tables in his father's house. So we start there. Because when we talk about the experience of emotions, and as we, and, and we remember we're coming from this Words of Life sermon series where for several weeks we asked the Lord to deepen our theology of words to kind of teach us what it looks like to worship Him with our mouths and all things. And we kind of said in week one, there's something that seems to often get in the way of that, and it's these pesky things called emotions. That once I start to feel something intensely, really all bets are off, and I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so we're asking him, Lord, show us through, through the lives and experiences of your people in your scripture, show us what it looks like to engage in the emotions that you've bestowed on your creation in a way that honors you by your design. Now this week, we're going to be talking about an emotion and an experience called confidence. And even as I say confidence this morning, I think that each of you can quickly kind of identify where you land on this experience of confidence. Some of you, even at the speaking of the word confidence, are like shrinking into your chair right now, like intimidated by the word confidence. Like you would self-identify on the far left side of the spectrum of human confidence. And then some of the rest of you wake up and every day you're like taking the day by storm and you're just ready to kind of attack whatever the day has. Maybe some of you are like past that on the spectrum of confidence in your whole life, you've heard that you're, you're cocky and that's your, your arrogance and you're just kind of far on that. But I would say that for most of us, when I talk about confidence, what you're going to do is what I'm going to do, which is your confidence is kind of situational. That the, the measure of confidence that you feel and that you experience is directly related to the level of aptitude or competency that you feel in the thing that you're stepping into, that you're going to kind of size up, how prepared am I for this? What work have I laid down? What groundwork have I laid? What ability and strength do I have? What beauty do I have? What resources do I have? What power do I have? And then factoring all those things determine what level of confidence is appropriate here. And so what I'm describing for you here is really something called self 
confidence. And what I'm hoping that we're going to do by getting our eyes on the words of David in Psalm 27 is to see how he juxtaposes self-confidence to confidence in the Lord. Because even though God created us in his image to experience a full range of emotions on a deep level, there are a few things that we have to kind of keep in front of us as being true, and it's this. One, that in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, when the world fell into sin by the sins of our first ancestors, that all things were spoiled by sin, including emotional experience, which means that although emotions have been given to us as a gift to experience fully and deeply in relationship with our God, God, there are any number of sinful expressions and manifestations of any given good gift of emotion in the human life. In addition to that, I just want to caveat that we need to talk about that some emotions, while they are not inherently sinful in themselves, like sorrow, for example, only exist because of the presence of sin. So for example, Jesus was a man of many sorrows, right? And Jesus, without sin, living a perfect life of righteousness, wept deep tears. So this is an emotion that is a gift to the church that is even modeled to us by our champion in Jesus, that while the tears themselves are not sinful, the presence of tears is because of sin. So not all, emotional, not all emotions will be experienced forever. We went through a sermon series in Revelation a few sermon series back, and we read that there will be a day at the second coming, at the culmination of the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more tears, there will be no more suffering. So emotional experience is a very unique thing in that it's, it's, it's walked out in this life in, in a way that is specifically for us. And we've been given all kinds of guidance on what it looks like to walk through those. So when we talk about confidence, we're not talking about self-confidence. Okay, self-confidence is almost always, like I said, it's going, to, it's going to be related to you sizing up your resources or sizing up your situation, which means that to place confidence in self is to place confidence in something that is intrinsically limited, right? At some point, you come to the end of resources or you come to the end of beauty or you come to the end of strength, right? But to put your confidence in the Lord is to put your confidence in something steady and sure. And this is why we're looking to this Psalm 27 with David, because I want to quick summarize David for you guys, just so that we're thinking about him, okay? David has given us every reason to think that if there's anyone who can take his confidence in himself, it might be David. David is literally a monarch, literally a king, literally has all the power that you could ask for. David has slayed the giant Goliath in his past. David has strangled bears and lions with his bare hands. David is a cool dude. And there are a lot of things that he could look at and, and, and conclude, I, I'm pretty great, and I've got reason for confidence in myself. But instead, in David's moments of need, we find that where he turns to find his confidence is somewhere other than his experience, somewhere other than his own strength, his own wisdom, his own resources, he turns to the Lord. As we walk through this um, contrast between self-confidence and confidence in the Lord, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. The first is this. We all want and desire confidence. That's a unilateral experience. Everyone in here desires confidence. In fact, this is so known that we all desire confidence that whole industries are built around telling you how to get it, 
right? So if you're looking for confidence in your beauty, but you're finding your beauty lacking, there's just three or seven products that you need to fix the beauty problem so that on the other end, you can find your confidence in it. Men, you're being conditioned and trained to believe that your confidence is on the other side of your wallet or on the other side of your power and influence, on the other side of your masculinity or your strength. You are a Rolex watch away from confidence. You are a fragrance away from being irresistible, right? You are a four by four away from plowing through the salt flats of Utah, right? Whole industries built around telling you where to find the confidence that we all know everybody is desperately seeking. And we all want it so bad that we also universally all fake it, right? This is the social media culture. Right? Everybody seems to have it put together and know exactly what they're doing and know exactly where they're going and, and exactly what they're after and exactly who they are, always putting their best self forward. And this is where culture gets it wrong, and this is where self-confidence versus confidence in the Lord are going to start looking very different, where the self-confidence looks contrived, always reaching for the next thing to assure me that my confidence is, it can, can remain or that I can achieve it through a purchase or through growth or strength or money or power or whatever, versus something outside yourself that is steady and sure. So I'll open up with a story really quick, and then we'll jump into our text. When I was growing up, uh, my parents were divorced, and so I would only see my dad's in the summer. So every year, it would be about nine or ten months since I last saw him, and so each time that I would see him, I would be much bigger than the last time that he saw me. So a, uh, a tradition for me was uh, basically as soon as I got off the airplane, we'd walk into the living or into the kitchen through the back door, and we'd sit down at the kitchen table, and I'd challenge him to an arm wrestle. Every year, what I wanted to know is, have I grown enough to beat my dad in an arm wrestle? I wanted to show off whether or not I had finally out outgrown my father. And every year, my dad would make quick work of me. And in my heart, I would rejoice. Because as much as I wanted to grow independent, to grow to the point that I was stronger than my father, more capable than my father, I was instead receiving joy to find that I was still under the care and strength of my father, that he was still stronger than me. And then my dad, we talked about this two weeks ago, he passed away quickly from pancreatic cancer. So the, the, when I could finally beat him in an arm wrestle, I didn't want to. Right? The day comes where you can best your father in an arm wrestle, and when the day finally comes, you don't want to. Because there's this sobering reality that the one who you always looked to to be your strength, to be your protector, to be your provider, to be your confidence is no longer able to do that, not in, not in a way that is meaningful. Well, this is earthly, right? Well, Pastor Michael and I have been friends for maybe 11, 12 years, and our kids, so our kids have grown up together, and they've been great friends. And I, re I distinctly remember the first time that I overheard his oldest and my oldest, around six, seven, eight years old, arguing in play whether or not uh, whose dad could beat up the other kid's dad. <laughs> You know, this one, right? Hasn't come to that yet, but I've been working out. And there's a joy in the kids as they look to the strength of their father, right? As like, like just more emboldened, more confident, more joyful in declaring the strength of their father than their own strength. It wasn't, I can beat up you. It's my dad can beat up your dad, Right? Because there's just a confidence in placing your hope in the strength of the one who is bigger and better than you. 
the one who has made himself responsible for you. And that's what I'm hoping that we're going to see in the Lord this morning in Psalm 27. I'm hoping that time and time again, what we're going to hear David say is, my dad is stronger than your dad. Let's start with verse 1. Verse 20, or chapter 27 of the Psalms, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation, David writes. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I didn't get a lot further than the first line in my sermon prep uh, for about a week. Just thinking about a theology of the Lord being our light and David acknowledging the Lord as his light. When he talks about the Lord being his light, who shall I fear? What he's acknowledging is that dark things are going to come for him. Darkness is going to fall on him, and we're going to read about them as we go through these verses. But darkness will come. He's sure of it. He even says it is coming. Darkness is going to come. But the Lord is my light, so who shall I fear? And I'm telling you that as I walk in life with friends in this church, what I see is that our, we tie our confidence directly to our ability to see the future. Right? That as, as far out as I can see and predict what is coming for me, as far as I can see and guess at what is around the turn, is the measure in which I will feel confident. And so when things seem blurry or when darkness is around me and I don't seem to know what is going to happen in my circumstances, my confidence wanes. But when I feel like things have been illuminated to me and light has been cast on what is to come for me in this life, then I feel confident. But instead, what David is saying in contrast to that is that the Lord is my light. And coming out of this sermon series through Revelation where we describe what it means for God to be our light, where, where, the, where, where uh, John says in Revelation that in the new earth there will be no need for either moon or stars because the glory of the Lord is its light. And he says that the gates of the city of the, of the new Jerusalem will remain open during the day and there will be no night, so they're always open. He's describing a steady, sure, permanent, radiating light of God. And this is the light that David is drawing on. That if the Lord is my light, my, my sure light, whom shall I fear? But similarly, we read in scriptures that the word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet. And see, this is different than the all-shining light of the glory of the face of God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is different entirely. If you take a, an oil lamp and you light your feet, you can't see much further than your feet. All that an oil lamp on your feet illuminates is how many feet are here. It's to illuminate that God is with you. And, the, and so, so if you're thinking about this room, if we turned off all of the lights and you couldn't see a thing and you had no idea what to expect, but there was one light and you could see it and that light was your God, you just walk towards him. You don't necessarily know anything else, but you know the light. You can see the light, and so you walk towards him. See, David is describing something here that is super important because it's the only way that we are going to be loosed from a lack of confidence when our circumstances are unsure. 
When we look around ourselves and we do not know what's, what is around the corner, I remember a day like this. I was working up at University of Chicago. I was one of four people in my position. We oversaw a department of about 80 people. All four of us drove to work, showed up on the same day, 8 o'clock in the morning, had our usual coffee, had our usual morning meeting, and then 10 minutes later, the other three people were fired and a restructuring was not announced. None of us knew this was happening. At the end of the day, I was the only guy left with the job out of the four of us. And the whole illusion of future, of the predictability of the future, of cost certainty, of, cost, of, of income security, of, of whatever it might be, we all believed going into the day that we knew what the day had for us, but the truth was is none of us did. And only one of us walked out of that day with a job. The Lord used that day in my, that, that moment in my life to say to me, you do not know what the future holds. Only I do. So don't place your confidence in that you can predict the future. Just know that I walk with you. That's what David's trying to say here. That your confidence is in who walks with you and that he sees what is ahead. Not only sees it, but he has ordained what is ahead. So whom shall I fear? He doesn't just say he's my light. He says he's my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Moving from light to salvation and stronghold. As this one's big, okay, and, and then we're going to kind of speed it up a little bit. But listen, the Lord has revealed your future. And this is big. Jesus Christ has come and paid the ransom for your debt. And Jesus Christ has secured a great and beautiful inheritance in eternity in the presence of your Father God for all time dwelling among the saints in the, the most amazing thing you can imagine. Just go back and read and listen to the Revelation sermon series, okay? That has been revealed to you. You do know, in that sense, your future. What you don't know is the story that the Lord wants to write in bringing you from here to there. And so we look with certainty on the future that he has revealed because he has been our salvation. And then we walk with tentative steps side by side with him as he unfolds the story of exactly how he plans to bring us into that promised future. Are you tracking with me? When evildoers, verse 2, assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So you'll notice here that uh, David uses sure language. He doesn't say, if evildoers assail me. He says, when evildoers assail me. To eat up my flesh, when like animals, they prowl at my door. When it will be my adversaries and my foes who stumble and fall. Although an army encamps against me, although war will rise against me. He fully acknowledges, he looks in the eyes, the strife and the struggle of this sinful and broken world and all, that and all that that entails, real risk, real hardship, real physical death. Even he's looking at these things that rise up against him and he acknowledges them. And that's the, that's the next thing 
Denial of sin is not confidence. Pretending everything's fine is not confidence. Faking a smile and acting like this world is not fallen, that terrible things don't happen every day, is not confidence. Confidence is to look the realities of sin in the face, to say, when evildoers assail me, though an army encamps against me, though war rises against me, yet I will be confident. It's to look them up and put them on the scale and to put the Lord your God on the other side of that on the scale and to just see that he far outweighs all that rises up against you is to place your confidence in the weightier of the two. It's not to deny it. It's to hold it out to your God. And suddenly what seems so big is quite small. It is they who will stumble and fall. My heart shall not fear, yet I will be confident. Why? Verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's gone through the trouble to say for us to hear one thing have I asked of the Lord. So we want to stop and look at it. What is the one thing, David? You're telling me evildoers are assailing you, that adversaries are rising against you, armies are encamped against you, war is arising against you. People want to eat your flesh. What's the one thing you're asking of the Lord right now? One thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, what David's asking of the Lord here is he's just reciting back to him what's called the Davidic covenant. He's reciting back to God, I am asking you to do what you have already promised that you would do. By the mouth of the prophet Nathan, God had promised to David what is called the Davidic covenant, where he had said to David, your throne will be an everlasting throne, and the Messiah that I have promised to ransom the sins of the world is going to come through your family line, so your throne will stand forever, and salvation of mankind will come through it. So when all of these things are rising up against him, David has been given through the sure promises of God his reason for confidence. Whatever the Lord does in this battle or in that battle, whatever the results of this wall standing or falling, whatever the results of me dwelling in this location or that location, whatever happens in the span of history, the Lord has said in an in, in, in a, uh, unconditional promise, your throne will be an everlasting throne and the Son of Man will be born from your family line. You dwell secure. What David is doing is he's getting his eyes not just on the character of God, which is the place we all ought to start, but he's getting his eyes on the promises of God. His confidence comes in the process. So when nothing makes sense, when there's darkness all around me, when I don't understand how any of this could be working together, the Lord has told me what he's doing, so somehow this fits. Somehow this is how he wants to do it. So I ask one thing, Lord, 
Let me do what you said I would do. Let me dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I just want to gaze upon your beauty. I just want to inquire in your temple. I just want to ask you questions. I just want to meditate in your presence. I just want to bask in your beauty. That's all I ask. Guys, imagine sizing up the biggest problem in your life right now. Just looking in the face, the hardest thing pitted against you right now. And then saying, I, I just want one thing, Lord. I want to see your beauty. And finding your confidence there. Does the Lord ever deny that question, like that, that petition, that request? Lord, let me see your beauty? No, maybe later. No. The Lord has surrounded us with his beauty, and, he, and, and that, that question never returns void. Although it takes some different forms. Verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So you see a built, a building confidence here that as he gets his eyes on the beauty of the Lord and says, oh, I just want that. And he gets his eyes on the promises of the Lord and he says, and those are sure. And he gets his eyes on the character and the person of God and he says, that is steady. He starts to speak in declarative certainty, I will. He will hide me in his shelter in the days of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. My head shall be lifted up above the enemies around. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will make a melody to the Lord. A little sidebar there. He was an amazing musician to top it all off. Let me offer that to the Lord in worship also. There's a growing confidence in David here, leading into verse 7. He starts to cry out to the Lord, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. What David is doing here to say, Lord, don't hide your face from me. Lord, don't turn your servant away in anger. God, do not cast me off. God, do not forsake me is to acknowledge before his holy God, I deserve all of that. That that is even on the table, that is even in his heart, is for him to acknowledge his position before God in his sin. To say to him, Lord, you said seek your face, I'm seeking it. If I'm to find it, you have to not hide yourself from me. I can't, I can't climb my way into seeing your face. I cannot, there's no stairway I can climb. There's no ladder I can climb. There's no mountaintop I can climb to see your face. This has everything to do with whether you will show your face to me. I can't leverage it. 
And this is huge when we talk about self-confidence versus confidence in the Lord. You will not see the face of God on your merits. You won't. You have no reason for confidence before the Lord if you are presenting yourself to Him in your merit. We come to God as beggars. We come to God as lowly sinners who have betrayed and sinned against Him. And our confidence before Him is not what we have done. It's not our moral resume. It's not what we've done for Him. It's not our obedience. It's not our good works or our goodwill. The confidence of David before God was not that, hey, since nine years old, I've done this. I've, I've, I slayed the giant for you. No. David sees rightly that it was the Lord who anointed him king. It was the Lord who slayed the giant. It was the Lord who has been with him in all of these battles where he's had victory, military victory one after another. It has been the Lord's mercy upon him, his undeserved mercy upon him. David says, I don't deserve your face. You'd have every right to turn me away in anger. You would have every right to cast me off, to forsake me. But God of my salvation, you have said, seek my face. And so I do. My confidence is in you. It's in you. Verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. You know, church, The Holy Spirit ministered to me and has made it very clear to me that he wants to minister to you this morning with this line. When David says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in, I need you to hear this, that so many of us have built our confidence or lack of confidence based on the people around us and how they have treated us, how they have affirmed us or not affirmed us, how they have raised us or not raised us, whatever. And, you, and many of you in this room today or listening online, I know it to be true, have, can look to your own father, your own mother, your own husband, your own wife, your own child, your own neighbor, your own pastor. Say, even these have forsaken me. Even these have systematically over time beaten me down. How can I have confidence when everyone in my life who I most trusted to care for me, to build me up, have only torn me down? I don't hear the voice of God at night. I hear the voice of so-and-so. Hear this from the Lord. I will take you in. But the Lord will take me in, David says, for even my father and my mother have forsaken me. Your measure of confidence, church, is not rooted in what people have told you, on what people have said about you and how people have treated you. If you have been despised, mocked, and rejected at every turn your entire life, the Lord will take you in. And let me tell you this, the person in this room this morning with the least self-confidence, the lowly and the meek, 
the one who approaches God with nothing in their hands to offer, who approaches a situation completely aware that if this comes down to me, I am out of my element here. That person is closer to confidence, to true confidence, than the person who enters that situation with all the confidence in the world and their abilities and their strength and their finances and their power and their influence and their charisma and their beauty. You don't get both. You get the wavering, uncertain self-confidence or you get the sure and steady confidence of the Lord who takes in the lowly. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. He's, I mean, this is, this, this is just describing more of our experiences of plight. Enemies rising up against him. Let, let me not fall to their will. You've got people who want harm for you, who are rooting against you. You have people in your life who, are, who want to see you fail, who want to see you harmed, who, who are rooting against your success, against your joy, against your security and your satisfaction. You've got people breathing false witness against you, been a victim of gossip and slander. You've got people talking behind your back. Your reputation goes before you. And what's worse is that Whatever falsehoods they might speak in your heart, you know that it's worse than they think. They breathe out violence against you. No, the Lord will take me in, David says. He says, teach me your way and lead me on a level path. I want to make a pause here also. I think that there is a theology of participation in the Spirit if you want to write it down, that we need to understand when it comes to confidence. Participation in the Spirit. Some of you, if I, talking about confidence is a little too abstract if we just talk about general confidence, so maybe we'll just pick something that, like, like if I were to have you guys over for dinner and I asked you, like, what are some areas where you lack confidence? I think a really common one that you'll hear is, I lack confidence in prayer or I lack confidence in evangelism, or whatever, fill it in. Let's go with prayer as an example, since I've prepared it. When you lack confidence when you pray, or when you do anything, what you're lacking is an understanding of a theology of participation in the Spirit. Our good God, the one who David is exalting this character, like the one who's made these promises, the one who Jesus said it would, better, it would be better for me to go and to send this spirit to you, the spirit that indwells you, when you pray, however imperfect your prayers may be, that spirit who indwells you and informs that prayer, then carries that prayer to the right hand of the Father, where Jesus Christ, the champion of God and man, is seated, and who has said that he is a great high priest who is interceding incessantly on your behalf to the Father. 
So when you pray, and the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit will even interpret your groanings that are too deep for words, carries the perfect prayer to the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father receives and intercedes on your behalf to the Father continuously for all time for your good. So every time you pray, you're praying the perfect prayer. I could do this with anything you might bring up to me. You tell me an area where you say you lack confidence, and I could return to you a theology of participation in the Spirit. Where if you're just looking at your flesh, if you are looking at your ability, your resources, you have every reason to lack confidence. But if this bodily life on our way to internal glory is our participation with the Spirit who never fails, then in all things there is every reason for sure and certain confidence. So verse 13, David says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe I shall or I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Guys, this is what it all, it, all, it all points here. It all lands here. It all culminates here. I ask one thing. I just want one thing. He says, I'm only asking this one thing, one thing I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon his beauty. Verse 13, I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Guys, we fix our eyes on this. There's no reason not to believe it. Jesus said you would. Jesus said he's gone to prepare that place for you. You will dwell secure in the land of the living, looking upon the face of your God for eternity. That is where your hope is found. And the journey from here to that day is our participation in the Spirit as the Spirit carries out that which has already been promised. So we look to three things for our confidence. The future that God has shown us. You have uncertainty about what's next for you? Look to what you do know. An eternity of goodness and gladness and joy in the, face of, in the presence of the face of your God. Number two, you look to his promises. To his promises. He has already told you what he is up to. And number three, you look to your walk as participation in the Spirit. That if you were to do this in your, in your strength, if you were to do this in your offering, if, by your, if it's by your obedience or your goodness or your whatever, it will fail every reason to be insecure. But if it's participation with the Spirit that was sent on your behalf, even your worst effort is used for good. So verse 14 becomes a declaration. This is from David to you. This is from David to me. This is instruction to himself and instruction to any who would sing along. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Whoever told you that like the path to confidence is waiting? Waiting? All that buildup and the big takeaway his charge to those who would sing along, his charge to me and his charge to you, wait for the Lord. There's no doing here. 
There are armies encamped against him, and he's not doing anything. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Church, a lot of us, when we are faced with darkness or uncertainty or whatever, the last thing we want to do with wait, you start to see activity, you start to see busying ourselves, you start to see us trying to gather all of our wisdom, every, every, every advantage or angle that we can find. We just want to get to work and we want to change our circumstances because we believe that ultimately good outcomes are dependent on us. What would it look like for you just to stop? What if courage, what if confidence looked like doing nothing? Because the most courageous, heroic act in all of human history looked like Jesus Christ having accusations hurled against him and returning not a word. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. In the greatest act of love, Tim Keller said, Jesus went to the cross and he stayed. He did nothing. He waited on the Lord and his God by the Spirit whom we participate in in this life rose him from the dead three days later, victorious, and has seated him at the right hand of the Father for all eternity. And we have been invited into that reality for all time. All Jesus had to do was wait, but we've got to get busy? I don't think so. So church, this morning we're going to invite us now in a time of response. I want this prayer to be a response not to what I've said here, but to what David has said here. His charge in building this confidence is wait in the Lord and let your heart take courage. And so if you just want to take a moment of pause, hold out to the Lord the things that you are busying yourself with right now, the problems you're trying to solve, the darkness that you are trying to illuminate, the difficulty that you're trying to overcome, your fears and anxiety, abuses and hardships. Hold them out to the Lord and just wait. I'm going to pray that you hear from him today.